Welcome to the East-West Psychology Podcast, a forum for the exploration of psyche and spirit. Join our hosts, Jonathan Kay and Stefan Julich, and their guests as they delve into the intersection of psychology, philosophy, world wisdom traditions, the arts, and more. Today, Jonathan and I will be chatting with EWP core faculty Helge Osterhold about the uniqueness of the EWP container and how he facilitates transformative pedagogy in the classroom. We then explore Jungian notions of East-West spirituality and address the importance of individuation in contemporary approaches to the activist-scholar paradigm. The interview ends with Helge outlining his recent paper, The Dance Between Individuation and Death Anxiety, an interdisciplinary reflection on cultural polarization in apocalyptic times. Okay, welcome to the EWP podcast for another episode. Uh, my name is Jonathan Kay, and I'm here with the co-host Stefan Julich. How are you, Stefan? Doing well today. I just got my first COVID vaccine. So I have tiny sore arm, tiny sore throat, tiny nausea, tiny brain fog. Status quo. Status quo. All right. Well, we'll uh, we'll press on anyway. And we have a very special guest today um, with us, a core faculty of our department, Helge Osterhold. Welcome, Helge. Yes, thank you for having me. Uh, very happy to be here. Could you talk a little bit about the journey that led you to EWP and how you came to, to be a core faculty with us? Yeah, the, the journey for me really started as a student in, must have been around 2002. And uh, I was living in Germany at the time and, uh, you know, kind of gravitating into counseling and coaching and healing. Uh, my path was clarifying in that direction and I was working with some people and I realized that I needed uh, more education, uh, maybe a license. Uh, I became increasingly clear that it was actually psychotherapy that I was interested in. So that part of a long story short, I looked online at the time. Maybe there was Google, probably not, but somewhere, and uh, found CIS. And I had been in uh, San Francisco as an undergrad, and so I wanted to come back and see what California educational opportunities would be. And uh, I found CIS and I just knew in that moment, seeing the website and education for mind, body and soul and everything I read there, I could just tell that this was the place sort of uh, intuitively that made sense and, you know, figured out all the details and uh, dotted all the, crossed all the lines and, and all that and came back and I did my master's in the integral counseling department, which was wonderful. Uh, but I realized by the end of it that what I really, really was interested in uh, were the classes that were offered in the East-West department. And I had taken a few electives from there, uh, but uh, my interest in depth psychology and Eastern wisdom traditions and 
uh, indigenous uh, wisdom traditions. All of that was housed in East-West. And I always wanted to teach. That seemed like part of my career vision. And so I applied and I became a uh, a PhD student in the East West, and I did that and graduated uh, f- uh, with a PhD in East West psychology, and then uh, went on to do other things. I worked for a few 10 years at UCSF um, in the University of California um, in the children's hospital in a palliative care program, and then founded a program for caregiver. Uh, caregivers a training program educational program for their well-being their stress and accumulated grief their communication in uh, in clinical settings and I worked there and but I never lost touch with east-west psychology that felt sort of like a, a home in some way I was in touch with some of the faculty. I was invited to teach as an adjunct, uh, started that uh, about 10 years ago, and um, always loved the, loved the program and what it, what it does, what it stands for, who it attracts. And um, in, I think, 2017, 16, 17, I believe, uh, there was an opportunity for a core faculty uh, position. And... Um, things just aligned in me and uh, in the opportunity that arose. And I said, yes, and they said yes to me. And I came back as a full-time core faculty at that time. And um, yeah, I've been back here since and loving, loving this, uh, loving this institution, uh, this conduit that East West is and uh, being uh, very excited and uh, fulfilled to, to be here. Can you uh, talk a little bit more specifically about what, how you see the East-West psychology container and how your work in the department kind of addresses the core aims and, and goals of this department? Yeah, the, the container, it's a special container, uh, East-West psychology. I think in, in attracting sort of different types, different archetypes of, of people, um, some of them might be more on the on a healer path, and they are maybe psychotherapists or counselors or um, massage therapists or energy healers of some sort, and they want to go further in their education, develop new knowledge skills um, to deepen and expand what they're already doing in that in that sense. Um, another type that comes into our melting pot uh, is more sort of the scholarly academic uh, teacher uh, archetype um, that people you know maybe similarly they want to you know deepen wisdom and and skills in in our program and uh, start a teaching career or enhance the teaching career that they already have in in some ways Um, sometimes it's a little bit of both uh, that people are both uh, healers and teachers in some way that was the case for me i'm also licensed as a therapist but the teaching was always sort of half of me wants to do uh, wants to do that work Um, and then we have a lot of people who come to the department who work in organizations for profit non-profit uh, that just uh, look for for uh, deeper meaning, spiritual aspects, wisdom aspects to then go back uh, to their 
to their worlds and uh, infuse them with things that are missing there, uh, whether it's in business environments or in, in nonprofit environments, um, or they start their own nonprofits, they start their own creative businesses afterwards that are sort of transformers and uh, movers and shakers in society. I don't know if that's exactly an archetype, uh, but something along those lines. And, you know, maybe I'm missing something, but those coming together, uh, you know, with, with people on a deep search for who they are and what they have to offer and wanting to enrich that, fine-tune that, um, uh, that's sort of our, our melting pot uh, in some way. And it's beautiful. If, if I think anytime you have communities where people have a deep dedication um, towards a common goal, and here the common goal is maybe finding oneself and uh, refining what the what the service is and what the offering is to to the world. Uh, that usually makes for a, a, a juicy and uh, empowered and inspired uh, place. And I think that's why East West psychology is like that because there's such a you know element of calling that that people come uh, in here with. I teach a number of classes that are sort of in the in the depth psychology, archetypal psychology realm, which is all about themes of um, themes of becoming a a Western ensouled perspective on what it means to be human and to truly become oneself and participate in meaningful ways. And so, the topics that I sort of mentioned in a in the larger container also, I think, come to fruition in what I'm teaching, actually, that these are the themes uh, that, I'm, that I'm teaching and that I'm discussing with, with the students. And so, you know, it aligns in that way, uh, but also other classes. I, you know, I teach some classes that are more skill-oriented, like dream work or a class that's called spiritual counseling skills. Um, uh, I teach another class that is the psychology of death and dying that, you know, sort of deals with our predicaments as humans to uh, know about our predicament uh, of impermanence and, uh, and mortality, and as well as, uh, you know, the reality of loss of our own health and loved ones and uh, everything else that we hold on to for a little while while we're here on this planet in this particular incarnation, uh, if we want to say it that way. So I think all my classes in one way or another deal with, with topics of what it means to be human and what it means to be not just human in general, but that particular human, what it means to be you, what it means to be me. And, uh, how we're sort of growing into that more and more, uh, polishing the vessel as as we go along. Uh, so, yeah, the the larger picture, I think, of what at least how I see East West, and then the classes that I teach, it's it's really the same theme in some way. It's really beautifully put, Helgi. I, it is bringing to mind something that you know is discussed in the department often, which is the 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 particular difference that East-West offers, even to students at CIIS, uh, and many of the students at CIIS come to the school for a, a different type of education. 
But East-West has a very particular way of working with students in the classroom. Um, maybe I, we could call it more process-oriented work. And I know that you really hold that poll for the department. So I was wondering if maybe you could maybe enter in a little bit more deeply and talk about what it's like in the classroom and how is it that uh, how is it that you facilitate student exploration of who they are in the classroom? I think humbly, I would say that CIS in general stands for experiential learning and a transformative aspect of, of education. I think our program in particular uh, is, is emphasizing that. And, you know, if you think about, you know, studying matters of, of consciousness or of the unconscious or uh, spirit and soul. Uh, we can study all this academically. People have been writing about that for centuries. And uh, there are, you know, beautiful systems and uh, concepts to, you know, inquire into and to discuss and to understand, which many universities would do. But I think in our, in our case, what what we like to do, what I like to do in the classroom is also for people to, you know, take all the ideas that we're studying in the study of texts um, and apply them to oneself and to, to filter that also through one's own life experience, through one's own uh, journeys, through one's own, uh, you know, maybe spiritual experiences or struggles or uh, falling, uh, falling down and the one's own uh, dark nights of the soul or one's dreams that, right. How can you study the unconscious, for example, and you know that well, uh, uh, Stefan, uh, without looking at your own dreams and the images that are arising from one's own unconscious. So in classes, we often do that, not just in a class that is designed for that, uh, in particular, like uh, dream work class where students learn how to facilitate that process for clients and in a variety of different ways work with dreams. But in other classes as well, where, you know, when we talk about an idea like the shadow in Jung's idea of the shadow of the neglected, unwanted, exiled parts of ourselves that we'd rather not have or hide in some ways, when we talk about that, we might break up into small groups and, uh, you know, maybe first reflect by oneself, like, what could that be for me if I'm really honest with myself? Uh, what are some themes in me that are shadowy in, in nature? Yeah? And maybe talk about, you know, some of it that feels approachable and safe enough to share with some other people in a small group uh, to, to get a better sense not just an idea, but uh, to take it a little bit further, maybe to get a little bit uncomfortable, never unsafe, but uncomfortable possibly in a creative way of uh, leaning into some of those edges that are, uh, you know, creative, creative edges uh, that we that we can learn something in. So things like that. Um, what other example could I give you uh, right now? So I think the, the main idea is taking the information not as a one-way street of sort of a, a download model, but also a filtering it through oneself and uh, seeing what lands where and how exactly and what does that mean in, in my own experience and in the experience of other people. And students will often say, 
that uh, you know while they're learning a lot from from our texts and from our lectures and so forth they're learning also so much from each other in uh, in these dialogues so i think it's i cannot imagine a different kind of education quite honestly uh, other than an experiential a personalized uh, participatory kind of education uh, maybe for some topics you know the download model is fine and you, you you take some information and you have it and apply it in some way but not for the themes that we're studying here they they have to go a little bit deeper to do them justice and to do oneself justice also that's great i mean these are the reasons why i'm here I seemingly got the call and saw that in CIS and, and especially this department. It's the way you're, what you're describing is to me, it sounds like a pedagogy of becoming, you know, emphasis on, on being in relation to text knowledge, but, but really becoming alongside it and, and trying to, trying to really ease into it, not just as something that's outside of us, but something that we can become along with, um, so like with the idea of that uh, being transformation, which is a, definitely a common theme throughout the whole school, could we maybe become a little more specific um, how you see transformation and then how that may differ from individuation? We can you know, get into more of your speciality through Jung. Uh, and then maybe we can develop even the idea of individuation and put that into... Um, conversation with the integral you know because a lot of this kind of education um in the way the school deals with it is is also is, it, we're, we're dealing with integral frameworks and so transformation individuation and integral pedagogy or just integral consciousness what are your thoughts along along these lines big questions big uh, i yeah i love that um you know the word transformation in some ways I hesitate with that word. In some way, it's a big word that sort of implies, you know, fundamental difference uh, before and after. I mean, somehow the associations that come to me, at least uh, as I'm thinking about it right now, it's it's sort of a, a high bar in some ways. Maybe it doesn't have to be, but uh, it can it can have that aspect um, and. I think there is sort of transformation with a small T, yeah. That is, that is, and maybe this is exactly how you meant it, also as you're as you're saying it. But people throw that word around, right? Uh, transformation. It's transformative. Um, so, what are we saying with that? It's a, it's it's somehow big. It's uh, enhancing us. It's uh, you know sometimes. Uh, transformation can maybe be strengthening something sometimes transformation can be loosening something sometimes transformation can be very subtle uh, if we look at it that way i i like the term and i think that also happens in the in the program if it if it can mean different things for different people in different situations and I think the students do change through this through this process, and if we were to ask them, and you know, we all have been a student at one time or another. You, you still are, as Stefan and I have been. Uh, there is there is change that happens by, uh, you know, being in these encounters and in these relationships with texts, right? In this relationship of becoming, I really like how you how you put that. 
things change. We we look at at our life, at our uh, possibilities of connecting with oneself, with other people, in what we're bringing forward. Maybe even in our relationship to the sacred in new ways uh, that we didn't know before by studying whether it's Eastern wisdom traditions or shamanic practices of, of sorts that whole worlds can open up. Can we call that transformative? For sure, right? Um, so, yes, transformation. This is sort of some thoughts about it and how I would think it, it applies to what happens uh, in East-West psychology. Individuation in the way... Jung holds holds this theme, um, which is a broad and deep deep topic that we can't quite get through uh, today either. But the basic idea, or some basic ideas about that, is sort of a a becoming who one truly is, right? Becoming an individual, an undividable, uh, the unique being uh, that maybe we were meant to become uh, from the get go. Sort of a becoming who we truly are despite uh, family and culture that we grew up in a sort of a shaping the unique being maybe shaping sounds a little bit too active but something like that yeah becoming the the unique human being that that we are it means that but it also means things like uh, in this process of of uniqueness also, a, so there's sort of a narrowing, we could imagine in some way, towards uniqueness and unique identity. But there's also a broadening, a loosening that happens in this, in this process of, uh, Jung speaks a lot about polarities and becoming on opposites and becoming a, a holder, uh, a carrier of, of the opposites within uh, and the polarities within. And so that we in this process of individuating, whether it's a solo journey or assisted in therapy or in other, uh, in other formats or a school like this, that we also find out what, what are these other sides that I, you know, I mentioned the shadow earlier that I haven't been in touch with that uh, were not accepted in the way I grew up or in the culture, what the culture uh, emphasized and valued, uh, but that are still me. So there's also, a, a broadening of, of access. A, a, so there's a narrowing and a broadening, right? There's a sort of becoming unique from culture and family. But by doing that and by knowing, knowing one's own dark side and one's sort of masculine and feminine principles, not gender associations, but more on sort of an archetypal level principles, by doing that, we're also becoming broader. We're becoming one of humanity, just another human. So there's sort of a, a narrowing and a becoming more unique. And there's also a becoming more, um, more connected, more communal in some way uh, through this process. And um, I don't know, maybe all of this also happens to some degree in, in our program, I, I, would, I would think and I would hope. Carol, when I, when I uh, first came to the program, Carol Whitfield, who I know was, was a mentor to you. She was, she was my advisor. I think I had mentioned something about the, my, uh, the tension in me, part of me wanted to be in kind of a monastery or an ashram. I had actually, when I first, the first time that I came to the school, I had spent 
some time in a Zen monastery um, before I came. And <clears throat> Carol said, there's one thing that you have to keep in mind, this is not an ashram, don't make this school an ashram. And I remember thinking at the time, hmm, maybe I wanted to be an ashram, but I think she's abso absolutely right. It's not an ashram. And yet it is an alembic. It is a crucible in, in which, depending I think on, on the level of commitment the student has, and it doesn't require students to do this. Students can come and take classes and get the education that they want and leave. But for those who are committed to uh, maybe a, a deeper process work within themselves, I've seen pretty extraordinary things happen. And I can attest to the fact, especially when I was working on my dissertation, that it was an extraordinarily transformative process and not an easy one. Uh, for, in, in ways that didn't, weren't even necessarily related, at least outwardly, to the dissertation. A lot of inner work, because I think that the department, especially if you're working with Jung, but I don't think that it's him alone. I think that the work of the program really, um, what's the right word? It, uh, it catalyzes deeper processes within st students. So if, you, if we're listening for that or, or we're attuning ourselves to that, I think that it, it can be an extraordinarily transformative process, even with a, a large T, although I agree with you that it doesn't, uh, we shouldn't sell it that way because that's making promises. And so much depends on the relationship of the student to the school and to the faculty members and to the, the student body. Yes, I totally agree, yeah. Can we touch on the, the idea of the integral? as well like that we're you know individuation um transformation with a small t i like that distinction or the big t or, right right um but the i mean one of the reasons i came to the school as well was i had experience in integral yoga and you know the school being founded up by haridas chowdhury upon those principles and with that in mind of like there's an east-west integration there's a site that we can experiment and explore how this is possible or how it isn't possible um so i mean i thought we could just chat a little bit about your experience your ideas about integration uh in and how that comes into your work um and maybe that leads right into uh talking more specifically about one of your classes east west spirituality which would be a class based on some idea mm -hmm. of integrating mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah you know um and I am by no means an expert on Aurobindo uh, or uh, Chowdhury's uh, writings and, and wisdom. So, uh, you know, that, that to front load it with, with that notion. But like I said earlier, the thing that really attracted me from the get-go, and that is rooted in the integral vision, of course, is uh, the, the idea of, a, of an education that is not just... Uh, intellectual that is not just mind but in, in an education that is also heart that is also soul that is also embodied yeah and an, an education that also is related to inner transformation but also to outer transformation of transformation of, of communities uh, there's the becoming of the individual but there's also the becoming of the of the larger field. And I know how deeply uh, our students care about offering and serving the development of humanity and the biosphere that we're, that we're participating in here. And clearly we need it. 
clearly the world needs more people that are aligned with with purpose and uh, with a with a sense of wanting to offer something to to change and i know every tech uh, firm in silicon valley also has one slogan or another of making the world a better place uh, so which you know we could discuss it probably has positive and uh, questionable aspects uh, to it but there's something about integral education that is where that that part is very important it's not just how we're going to change ourselves but also how we're going to change the world and how are we going to heal ourselves and how we're going to heal or help heal um, humanity and uh, and uh, the planetary situation that that we're in so those are some thoughts that i have about integral and integration and you know we our program started out more than 30 years ago, I believe, if I don't get the number wrong, um, as at least under this name, um, as an integration, as it's you know obvious in the title, between East and West. And initially, it was more an integration of Eastern uh, wisdom, largely Indian uh, tradition, and Western psychology, humanistic uh, psychology, transpersonal psychology that was sort of just starting at that time. Uh, and I think the levels of inter those conversations are still going on. And, you know, we're more east, west, north, south. Uh, we say sometimes now we are involved in world psychologies and world uh, philosophies and traditions. There's indigenous components from, you know, North America and South America and other places uh, there is uh, a different variety of Asian philosophies that, you know, become integrated. And students always, almost every semester, students mention in classes how impressed they are and how the classes link up with each other. And that the themes from one class are sort of leading uh, and leaking into what they're studying and what they're processing in another class, um, as if it's sort of miraculously designed. And I don't think we're designing it to that degree of detail, but it's it's sort of a beautiful organic uh, coming together of these of these themes that uh, you know work really well together. And in some classes, there's more of an integration of of different themes, you know by design and on purpose. So one class that I that I teach on Jung and East-West East West spirituality, which is rooted in Jung's work. Um, and Jung thought a lot about how what he, you know, theorized and also experienced in his own encounter with his own unconscious and in the work with his patients, but he sort of built outwards from there and looked at how do other traditions relate to these topics? How do other traditions that have thought about these things for a long time uh, hold certain things? What, what are parallels? What are touch points? And so we're sort of going on a journey with Jung in relating Jung to sort of a, 
what he calls the Western psyche and sort of a Western consciousness, but also Western religion, uh, Christianity, as well as Eastern religions that he wrote about and make these connections between his own ideas of becoming, of uh, individuating, of the nature and dynamics of the psyche. How does that held in in different traditions. And so he, you know, he studied and inquired and, and uh, made connections of his own thinking with how things are held in Hindu traditions or uh, Taoist traditions or also indigenous traditions on his travels uh, uh, and encounters with, with North American uh, native uh, people, African uh, people, and, you know, sort of a different part of the story. But so in that class, we're we're looking at that. We're looking at uh, you know a bit of a comparison, as well as an infusion of how do these, in some level, very different traditions with very different aims of of being and becoming, and different methodologies and tools and how to get there. Uh, how are they different, and how they're also similar to to what Jung was proposing as a as a path, a spiritual, you know, psycho-spiritual path for uh, for people outside of traditional religions and outside of uh, traditional um, culturally informed uh, ways of, of doing that. And there's a lot of, you know, beautiful and interesting connecting uh, connections and... Uh, Great, yeah. Thank you very much, Helge. Uh, Stefan, do you have anything you want to say along these lines? I, w I was thinking that uh, in some ways you can look at East-West as a as a metaphor. And I know I know there's been a lot of discussion in the department. Maybe do we want to change our name because the because East-West sometimes seems very narrow. But if you think of it in kind of Jungian terms, or even Aurobindo in Aurobindonian terms, because in the Integral Yoga, there is uh, uh, a lot of the work that's done is the work of uh, joining the opposites, of uniting the opposites. So there are a lot of similarities in these two traditions, um, uh, but I to to look at it as in a in a kind of a, a symbolic way that we're uniting in some ways the contradictory or even warring aspects of ourselves. And I really love the way that you kind of uh, discussed kind of uh, becoming as both inner transformation and outer transformation. So there's the becoming of the outer field as well as the inner field. And I know in many of my conversations with Jonathan, this is a, a theme, this is something that Jonathan is really kind of working on in his own uh, scholarly work and also in his personal work as well. So uh, yeah, a lot, a lot came up. Yes, I that was just really, really important to me for sure. The idea of, you know, inner and outer healing, like, it's happening it's it's almost like a fractal way of looking at a cosmology that starts within but it, it just fractally goes out and and thinking about family dynamics um how things are changing and rapidly changing in contemporary culture um society and how politics is is the sort of the the polarization of politics is representing uh, a lot of 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 issues that are pointing towards there's some serious healing that needs to happen on the bigger on a bigger level on collectivities and, and on, on nationwide and continental wide uh, collectivities uh, one thing that you mentioned in our, our our chat the other day 
Uh, you, we're talking about how uh, you know EWP can help students become agents of change in the world, and I really, I really love that. There's an activist side, which I didn't really expect um, from myself so much or from the department in a way. It's but it's something that became very important, and I'm finding that as as a theme throughout throughout my studies and throughout uh, meeting all of the, the faculty and, and people in my cohort. But there's, there is, and everybody has a different relationship to being a, an agent of change, you know. Um, but I just wanted you to talk a little bit about your work and how, how you uh, teach that, the pedagogy of that. We've talked a lot about pedagogy already. Um, a little bit maybe we going into the scholar-practitioner model and how when we chatted last time, you, you brought that scholar practitioner to another level saying, well, there's actually an activist scholar level, which is actually at play too. And that's sort of, I'd like to hear more about that because I think it's really, really important. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, you know, activism, like you were already mentioning can mean so many different things of, of standing up for something that one believes in, right. Of, um, putting one's best foot forward to being part of a change to maybe solve a problem uh, that is obvious. And I think a lot of the activism that comes out of our students, you know, like I said earlier already, has to do something or other with, uh, with bringing necessary change of consciousness or change of relating or change of practice uh, healing themes uh, out in, out into the world. And, you know, to me, that is activism. Activism is, you know, when we think of activism, maybe we think of people in demonstrations or making calls to voters and, you know, writing postcards. So people go to the election, which is things I do uh, around election time. So there's that level of activism that is necessary, you know, to, or to vote even to you know to begin with so but there's the other activism of how do i participate in a in a way that suits what i have and what i can do to move us maybe a little bit further to move the the needle just a little bit uh, in in a good direction and you know it's a difficult time right now I mean, clearly the last year has been difficult for many people in a variety of ways with the pandemic, uh, but you know, the entire theme of uh, global warming uh, is you know, just in the background now because we're, we're dealing with these acute problems in the moment, but none of it is going away, right? There's the cultural polarization in, here in the United States that is very strong, but also in other, in other places around the world. And so finding out of the the stress that all this and the worry that all this can induce, finding a way in, how can I participate in an intelligent, meaningful way that is also my way, that brings also out of me what what I can what I can do. I think this is sort of the kind of activism that I can align with personally and uh, I think that we realistically also can help our students look deeper into what that what that can look like, you know. Um, so helping, as I was saying earlier, helping people find out what their original and unique way of contributing is, that is activism to me. Yeah? 
uh, being in a healing field as a psychotherapist and helping one person at a time or sometimes two people at a time if it's a couple to find some perspective to find some healing to find some relief of what's uh, stressing them what's painful in their life what's unresolved uh, that is activism to contributing you know jung and jung's student and sort of you know strong follower edward edinger uh, talks about this as well as if you know the the sum total of consciousness that changes with one person at a time changing yeah? if i get in touch with uh, my pain and am able to transform some of that that contributes to the overall consciousness uh, of uh, of change of 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 people with less pain walking through the planet and maybe acting it out in different ways if i can help one person at a time be less angry or less frustrated or less depressed, that will have ripple effects. So there's sort of a contribution to a larger consciousness. So all of that to me is activism. It's very subtle. I don't know if that's enough activism. I don't know if that, I struggle with that sometimes. I don't know if that's the right kind of activism for the dire times that we're in, but it's the activism that I'm already involved with there that seems to have a need for, for these things that seems to be aligned with who I am and what I can do. Um, so this is how I'm active in these in these forms. Yeah, I mean, recently, the topic of of polarization and in society has something that I've really struggled with: that people aren't, you know, even able to listen to each other anymore. Um, that there's this sort of hostility and uh, emotional polarization that is really beyond differences of opinion or or politics or, uh, you know. Yes, it goes to value levels very quickly, but it's even beyond that. It seems like we're in some sort of bigger trance almost, at least in this country. And so, you know, thinking about that and, and writing about that in, you know, how can we understand that, A, this, this trance of what's, what's happening and what could be a, a possible remedial uh, uh, factors, right? What could contribute to to less of that and more of a conversation and of seeing common ground and so forth. So those are topics that I'm really interested in, 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 in more recent years. Um, and, you know, that I, you know, would call activism also with a small a, by the way. There's a, a statement that Jung made on, I think on a number of occasions, a number of places, and I'll only be able to paraphrase it, but it's something like you can only, uh, as a therapist, you can only bring uh, uh, an analysis uh, along as far as you've gone. So it's your, it depends on the, the, the work that you've done on yourself that uh, that gives that enables you to help somebody come to that level or to that depth. But I think that it requires that requires engagement on the I mean for transformation requires engagement so, you engage, my experience anyway. You engage before you're ready in in some ways. Otherwise, we'd we'd be waiting, you know, until we're in our 80s or 90s. Uh, and I know that uh, how that feels firsthand. So the engagement actually brings about the change that's necessary. Um, 
So it's the same thing. Like you, you know, don't you can't expect necessarily to be brought along, waiting waiting around for a guru to bring that. You have to kind of roll up your sleeves and do something. And the work is both inner and outer. And I think that depends a lot on temperament where we find ourselves on that spectrum. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I I really like how you just framed that. The engagement happens before we're ready, right? That also, in some way, if I hear that, it implies also. Um, the not not being ready also means not being comfortable and maybe collectively we are really uncomfortable right now and we probably need to be and individually also to get uncomfortable to engage to really look more deeply and aim aim higher in one's own inner work as well as in one's one's contribution i don't see any other way um, but it's not a waiting around to be taken on a on a comfy uh, on a comfy ride in in some way. This is not this is not what this is right now. Right, or a waiting to be complete before you start doing anything. That's right. That can be the other pitfall. Right. Uh, I'll I'll start doing it once I once I have figured it all out or am complete in some way. Yeah. And when are we ever? Right. 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 We're never complete. Always. Always in becoming process um going back to what you had said earlier i i love how you were phrasing this this kind of act, approach to activism and i was hearing almost like the concept of a micro activism which can sort of help bring the idea of activism which like you had said can be, sometimes be conceived of like you know um going to to protest and big things that happen on a on a on a, a large collective level but the idea that every act can be a, an act of micro activism, um, almost like a micro politics. I mean, every decision that we make leaves a trace of, of a, a political decision or a decision that can be seen in a political sense. And so I really uh, agree. I remember when I was sort of growing up into the world, I became po politically uh, active. Uh, I started learning and I became much more of an activist and I burnt out. And that's at that time I found myself uh, needing more of a spiritual foundation in my life. I ended up going to India, you know, and I really decided, well, I need to work on myself. So even that could be seen, you know, being a spiritually healthy individual could be the first step, you know, and a micro activist kind of way of looking at framing your life so that you can then, you know, be in a state in some some more of a stable position to engage in and to work on larger levels but i found that when i was sitting in india thinking learning how to play a raga music is really helping me it's really healing me but maybe playing playing music in, in like music in society and playing music for people and playing ragas which uh, that can be also a, a very activist way of approaching music and sound and and you know collect collective interaction yes yes yeah I it it sure is right uh, i mean it's finding your own tune and offering up to a small circle that wants to hear that tune and sing along in some way i don't know if that happens in the raga music as much but metaphorically i think this is exactly what this what this is i'd like to bring up uh, an article that you had sent us over to read that hasn't been published yet but it will be um, the dance between 
individuation and death anxiety, an interdisciplinary reflection on cultural polarization in apocalyptic times. Except mouthful, huh? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's a fantastic article. Uh, you said you sent over a shortened one. Um, I'd love to read the longer one too, because I, I can see how things can just be deepened and, and, and opened up more. But I thought it was an amazing um, glimpse into the kind of work and, and the lens that you bring to the department, but also just so, so um, potent in, in really getting, getting somewhere with trying to understand our times. Can you talk a little bit about that, uh, the article, um, and, and also where it will be published and when? Yeah, well, uh, thank you. I appreciate uh, the feedback. Not so many people have read it yet. It all makes sense in my head, <laughs> but you never know until uh, it also makes sense in a few more in a few more heads. Um, so this article I, I wrote, um, and it's going to be published in September, I believe, in the Journal of Analytical Psychology. Um, and I'm actually presenting it this weekend at a conference uh, that was supposed to be in Brazil, a Jungian conference, uh, but like everything, it's online uh, right now. So, you know, in a nutshell, the the idea, like I said earlier, thinking about this cultural polarization that is happening, uh, uh, the populism, you know, that is observable in many countries. I mean, you know, things like Brexit, the election of Donald Trump, um, but in a number of countries, the, you know, five out of the largest seven democracies now have elected populist uh, leaders in the last uh, 20 years, I believe, uh, including the US, India, Brazil, uh, Mexico, uh, I think the Philippines uh, as well. But, you know, in Europe also you find you find a lot of populist movements. And, you know, I was wondering why populism is becoming more of a thing. It really hasn't been in the times when I grew up and when I was younger. And what about this time that makes these sort of uh, uh, populist leaders that can be left-wing or right-wing, but that have these sort of simple messages and a and an assertion of uh, being of the people, right? And standing up for, for the common people and for the common good against some elite in some way. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting that left or right wing can claim that. And, you know, even somebody like Donald Trump, interestingly, sold the message that he was going to clean the dump or drain the swamp or uh, something along those lines as being a member uh, you know sort of an exemplar of the of the elites uh, but so why populism is becoming more more popular uh, more of a thing uh, around the globe and you know polarization to go along with it interested me how you know like i was speaking about earlier in in the united states but also in other countries the sort of the partisan animosity and uh, and uh, adversity has been increasing. I was interested in that. And it felt to me that it was increasing, but you know, you do the research and look into it and uh, it's not in every country, but in a number of countries that is also happening. Yeah, this sort of deeper ideological division and animosity between groups that don't want to hear even from each other anymore on what the reasons are. 
And so as I'm, you know, thinking about that and, you know, my first thinking is, of course, you know, Jungian and to look sort of at a, you know, what kind of a, a shadow dynamic <clears throat> might be might be happening here. And there's different ways of going with that conversation. But maybe to, as a backdrop, Jung himself uh, wrote a lot about uh, cultural groups and and uh, mass mentality sort of being in a possession of a certain idea yeah, uh, most clearly of course two world wars that he lived through and that he reflected on um, at the time but there's something about the individuation that we spoke about earlier that individuation is sort of in his view and I think that is you know as relevant as ever is also an antidote to uh, to mass mentality, to isms of all sorts, right? Uh, that one can much easier be swept away if one hasn't done the inner work of like looking deeply within, of maybe also being grounded in a certain, uh, uh, you know, in this in the psychological realm, knowing oneself well, but also having a you know a spiritual uh, openness uh, in some way on top of that. So he was always concerned about people that about large groups of people anyway, but also that uh, individuation is our task so we can withstand cultural trends like that, that we know who we are and do not get caught up in, uh, you know, blaming and scapegoating and uh, these sort of simple solutions that the populism often offers in some way. So, that was interesting. That wasn't new. Uh, somehow, uh, and that's really the main thing that this article does, is it brings this line of thinking together with a line of thinking, a perspective coming out of social psychology, very different on the surface, not very related. Uh, but then maybe, uh, and the the group, uh, the the section of social psychology called terror management theory, uh, TMT, since the 90s, they have, uh, um, you know, several hundred research studies published uh, that are looking into death anxiety. And this is an interesting topic, and it seems maybe somewhat of a jump, but I'll, uh, you know, just try to wrap it up or, or integrate it uh, quickly. So terror management theory you know, they founded this out of, uh, it was inspired by the work of uh, a man named Ernest Becker, who had a, was building on earlier psychoanalytic thinking, all, going all the way back to Freud, Otto Rank, uh, most importantly. But the idea that death and the fear of it uh, sort of haunts the human being, and that it is always beneath the surface, and that uh, and this is terror management saying this, that as humans, we have to defend against this death anxiety because it would be overwhelming. And in, in some way, what they're saying is that um, to defend against death anxiety, we have to believe in something uh, that, is, uh, that is going to continue. Some aspects of ourselves will continue, either literally or symbolically, uh, after we die. And so literal immortality, symbolic immortality, 
they act as a buffer against this sort of background death anxiety that we have as human beings. That's the idea. That was uh, Ernest Becker's idea. And so this has been tested many times that, uh, you know, so immortality stories have been around. Every culture has afterlife stories and so forth. Um, but there's also the immortality that comes through being a member of a culture or a group that we believe in. So this sort of broader idea of a um, cultural buffer that helps us, that culture is a buffer against being afraid of our own mortality and the impermanence of everything. It's sort of a strong statement, but that's where these guys go. And so they say, there's two main mechanisms involved in that, in being a member of a culture. So one, I believe that, uh, and I believe in, and I'm committed to the validity of my own cultural worldview, values, behaviors, flags, all that stuff. So I believe in a, a cultural, uh, in, in my culture, we could say, even if it's a microculture. And the second part of this mechanism that helps us unconsciously is that we have to feel that we're meeting the standards and expectations of this worldview. Okay. So I have a, a group or a culture that I can believe in. And I feel like I'm a good member of that, of that world. So they've done, like I said, hundreds of, of studies where they have a, uh, a, a study group and a control group. And, you know, the group that they're, uh, um, they have a, the group that they're studying, uh, the impact of mortality awareness, it's somehow subtly in a questionnaire that they're filling out gets reminded of mortality. So you fill out 50 questions about your life. And, you know, in the one group question, 37 is, by the way, you're going to die. How do you feel about that? So it activates the, the sense of mortality somewhere in the background. And that's the primer, as they call it. And then from there, they go through the rest of uh, the interview, forget about it, but it's still somewhere latently in the background. And then they do the actual test. And so they've tested this over and over and over again with all kinds of different populations. And what they're finding is that when people are reminded of their mortality, they will have a more pronounced bias towards their in-group, defending cultural worldviews, supporting people who seem like them, and more hostility, aggression, and judgment against groups that are considered other. So this in-group, out-group bias is amplified by uh, being reminded of our mortality. So I find that a fascinating you know, uh, research that, that these people have been doing for a long time. But somehow it occurred to me that there might be something, I mean, clearly, global warming, immigration, floods, disasters, uh, you know, economic inequality. I mean, there's so many things that people are worried about that in some way we could think that death anxiety somewhere in the background is on a probably high level, maybe all-time high level uh, right now. So the, the huddling up with the in-group and defending those worldviews uh, to buffer against, against the threats, whether they're imagined or real or abstract or just around the corner helps with that as well as the hostility towards the people who we're perceiving as other right so what you see between democrats and republicans in a fired up 
uh, environment where there's lots of perceived threats and you know uh, threats to one's life in some way, even if they're imagined, will make people huddle up and demonize and judge and alienate what is what is considered what is considered the other. So they kind of answer that, and you know the so you know more prejudice and stereotyping and uh, things like that. Uh, um, defending one's worldview and judging the other person's worldview is sort of the result of that. But, you know, the question on how they interrelate is, is sort of the second question. And, you know, just in a, in a nutshell, what they're finding, you know, what helps to reduce death anxiety, for example, yeah. What practices or qualities in people help us not fall into this trap when we're threatened or when we feel threatened to huddle up and judge what we perceive as other. And that was fascinating to, to, to see what's, what's in there. So things like humility, for example, a humble, a humble ego, uh, somebody who knows themselves, who has done some inner work, who knows their strong sides and their not so strong sides, and who can look with compassion at, at oneself, a humble person much less prone to falling into this trap, for example. Yeah, uh, they have done, this is all in social psychology still, mindfulness and Buddhist practices of, uh, you know, that sort of go in a similar line of being able to uh, be aware of one's inner state without, you know, acting out on it, without being overcome with emotions. Mindfulness practices help uh in relationship to this death anxiety and those uh, social effects that it has. So as I was looking in the in the literature in terms of, you know, what have they already found in social psychology with terror management? What helps to buff to mitigate against death anxiety evoking these negative uh, kind of antisocial, anti-other effects? And so they found things like humility. They found things like mindfulness. They found things like self-regulation that is uh, that is helpful with that. Um, self-esteem and the way they're framing self-esteem means the very thing that I talked about earlier, to feel like a valuable member of one's group. Yeah? So people who are humble, who know themselves, who are not uh, deflated about who they are, who don't feel terrible about themselves, who don't necessarily feel inflated and amazing, but who kind of realistic, who know themselves, who are sort of connected to who they are. Uh, hum humility seems to be a real antidote to death anxiety and these uh, these effects. Yeah. And as I as I heard that, I thought there's a connection here to individuation in some way. The person who individuates, who does all this inner work, who deals with their own shadow side, right? They know themselves quite well. So there is some, you know, there's some at least preliminary themes that of connection. Yeah. So humility, being mindful, knowing oneself. Yeah. This is all about what the individuation journey is about. Being able to recognize feelings or complexes that take over at a certain time, to not be gripped by them as much, right? Uh, there's a parallel here, helpful against all these effects, yeah? being able to regulate oneself along the same lines. Um, so I found that 
sort of indirectly, a lot of this was speaking to what Jung more intuitively was saying, the individuation process and the individuated person, more or less, uh, would, would be um, sort of fortified in some way against these dynamics of mass movements where we're the good people and the other people are the bad people. And so I thought these were fascinating parallels between the two, uh, between, you know, Jung's theory on one side and the studies of these in-group, out-group behaviors enhanced by, by death awareness, mortality awareness, uh, that somehow belong together, that somehow fit together, that somehow, you know, uh, inform each other in, in some way. Yeah. There's more more ideas in there, but um, it's probably a longer answer than you were looking for anyway. I thought that, I thought it was great. Um, I was thinking about responsibility as a kind of a culturally integrating factor in Jung, how taking on the responsibilities of adulthood, becoming a, a full member of the society in some ways is also, um, can be, uh, maybe it's not 100% effective, but it can be uh, a, a way in, in which, uh, or a method through which uh, we um, move beyond the in-group because we have to be integrated into the full society. So in, in, individuation in some ways is a, is, a, is, is a complete integration into the society as well. It's, a, it's an integration of our various parts internally, but also really being a good citizen. And this is something that I've, I didn't expect to find when I started really taking Jung seriously and studying him. But again and again, he keeps coming back to this theme that being a good citizen, being plugged into the society in which you're a part in, uh, in a mature and effective way, I think in some ways is really kind of a prophylactic against th that kind of thinking. That, that's right. That's right. But, you know, just for, you know, somewhat com complete uh, completeness sake. So responsibility, but responsibility with, with consciousness and with insight, right? It's not just a sort of moral obligation kind of responsibility, as, as you, you know, uh, you know, to live by virtue and rules and being a good member of society, which is a good step. But with knowledge also of the different parts and the, the difficult sides in oneself, then this can be more integrated and more grounded in, in something, right? So I think this is a really important point about it, but it's, it's, so it's not one or the other. It's not just the inner work. There's also action, there's responsibility. How do I show up in the world? But it's also how do I show up in the world with really knowing myself um, and, and, and working, working with that. Very important. Yeah. And it also seems like that you're the culture that you were from, the, the worldview would have a lot to do with how you looked at mortality and how you would be, you would generate a certain kind of existential angst based on it. And some, some cultures um, have a very, very strong ideas about the fact that death is like there, there, there can, we can attain immortality and there's practices, yoga, for instance, to, and it's sort of that sort of stares this kind of um, this this question sort of in the face and tries to deal with it in that way. But I guess as a as a Canadian, as somebody from you know North America in that sense, I mean, the cultural container that I'm from, I felt like it didn't provide a lot of these things for me. 
and as it's sort of fragmenting um, away from the older religious ideals which would present an option, one way of approaching this, like the Judeo-Christian um, perspective, uh, which is lightly in the background of my life, I found it was very challenging but interesting to go to India and learn a little bit more about what death means to them. So that's, that's sort of, a, I guess, something that would be, that would come into your article in terms of how do people face and what kind of existential angst is really coming up in terms of how they see death from their cultural perspective. Yeah, which is an interesting, you know, point to look at and inquire further into. I know they've done these uh, mortality threat uh, studies in a number of countries, and they find the effect to be consistent. I don't know, you know, comparatively, you know, in a in a culture with a strong uh, sort of mythology and belief system in afterlife uh, or cyclical nature, rather than you have your one-time shot uh, and you know better do it right. Uh, how that how that relates exactly, but the dynamic is there. They found that cross culturally as a as a dynamic. What their relative starting point of death anxiety is, I'm I'm not sure. I have to look into it a, a little bit more deeply. But th- these are interesting questions also to to think about. Um, you know, a strong connection to any myth and, you know, brings us back one more time to to Jung, who one of his diagnostic uh, uh, assertions about the Western psyche was that we've sort of lost a myth. We've lost the myth that we truly fully uh, believe in and that answers the big questions in life to a satisfying degree. And you know, so just being from a culture that has a good afterlife tale and a you know maybe different relationship to what death means and what life means uh, in in between, that's one step. But also how deeply one is embedded in that, right? Because you couldn't grow up Christian or Hindu or something, and you know maybe it was particularly strong in your house, uh, maybe not. Uh, maybe it you know resonated deeply, and there's sort of a deep sense of being contained uh, in that belief system or not so much. So those are all interesting variables to, to think about and what that would do to somebody in, uh, in relating to that. Yeah, but I, I would definitely, it seems to make so much sense that this is a global, that you're observing and what this paper is getting into is, is a global phenomena that, that needs, to be, needs to be looked at in a super serious way. I really uh, appreciate you taking the time to uh, to walk walk us through this your thoughts and the paper will be available um, shortly, published and that's great. I encourage everybody to go and read that. Um, but you've really given us a deep insight into I think some of the most important questions of our times. Well, thank you. I uh, you know if it if it can be a little contribution to people thinking about what they're experiencing already, uh, then that might be helpful. You know, I think that the next question would be more of a, well, what do we do with that? If that's really happening? Uh, what are some more, some other ways of applying uh, this into, uh, you know, which steps can we take individually and collectively to look at, uh, you know, what, what uh, ways are out of this trap of us versus them thinking. And it's so easy to fall into, no matter one's political 
or or even spiritual stance i mean it's so tempting to to go there right these people they just don't get it look at them yeah uh, and in instead of uh, you know curiosity and listening and seeing them in their humanity and sort of on the shared ground that we're all standing on and i think we that's what we need you know even if we disagree about the the way forward and i think something that you just kind of said in passing being aware of what it is that we're thinking really kind of kind of you know it's constant revelation to me to have that moment where i realize oh you know what i'm this is what i'm really thinking this is what i'm really feeling because i've spent so much time just not paying attention to it and then living in platitudes or cliches or uh judgments but to really observe um the the kind of um, myriads of of uh selves that exist within us and how our thoughts are constantly in a constant state of changing our, and our feelings as well. Uh, and we often, how often I will fall back on self-definition as a, as, as a way to kind of mm -hmm. yes. uh, right the ship in a way, but there's so much that's, that's happening in there. And I think that it's really easy to, to, to I mean, this brings us into Jung's ideas on projection and that's a whole other subject, but, how easy it is to just think it's them it's them right it's not me yes so tempting yeah well i think the work that uh the department is doing and and the people my you know the students the the professors uh i think that is one one way of answering some of these questions you know building structures of becoming building collectives small collectives that can that can sit with these questions and and individuate with them confront them but also collectively start to start to create small groups in which you know we can sit with this kind of attention it's a real it's a deep-seated tension that i think is part of the reason why the polarization happens is sort of like it's like a magnet it's sort of like is but we need we need to be able to hold that tension that's i think that's what i'm realizing in my my studies here um, looking into some of the bigger the bigger bigger issues that have been coming up across the around the world you know um but also just with myself in terms of these many these many selves like you said the myriad selves there's always going to be a, a, a necessity to sort of confront these opposites but sit with the tension that they create as well and 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 learn how to how to face it with some kind of an equanimity in which you can you can render it um productive Mm hmm. That's right. That's right. And you know what you were just saying now, you know that this is this is an individual work, but as you're just emphasizing again, it's also a collective work that will need. These are conversations that that need to that need to happen. It's not everybody's solo uh, adventure, and we didn't even get into the sort of cultural layer of of self inquiry right of of cultural residues and cultural heritage and you know what they call cultural complexes that in some way help us understand who we are and help us define but it also grip us and also tell us we are this and they are that right that also uh, you know uh, lead to more of of what we're you know just talking about to grow out of 
in in some way. So you know, this is I don't know. I could go on and on. I uh, find these topics so important and and fascinating in equal measure. That's that's the next interview that we'll do with you. Right. Yes. We we've gone we've gone over our normal hour here with you, Helge, and I think we just hit a nice stride at the end there, getting more in, into your theoretical work, and it's it's super important. So let's do that. Let's plan uh, to, to come back and we'll uh, we'll reframe some of these questions and continue the conversation um, for another podcast. Sounds great. Great. Well, thanks for being here with us. Thanks, Stefan. It's a pleasure as always. Ron, thank you so much, Helga. I appreciate that the time. We know that how busy you are. It was great. Really great talking to you. Thank you. Great talking to both of you and... Uh, wonderful that you're setting up this this podcast and these conversations uh, it's lovely
Mm-hmm.